Happy Question Show Day. We're back for another episode of our weekly question show. Your questions, my answers, as always, wherever you are, anywhere on the channel, go ahead and type it in. I'll gather a bunch of them up and answer them here. I just want to remind you that this show, the Guide to Space, the Weekly Space Hangout, Astronomy Cast, everything we do are available as a podcast as well. And I'll put a bunch of links to the podcast in the show notes for this and a bunch of episodes. So if you don't want to have to come to YouTube, you want to be able to listen to these episodes or even watch them. They're both video and audio podcasts. So hopefully that makes your life a lot easier. All right, let's get into the questions. Hi there. Nine minutes in and you've just circled the question. This strategy for presenting info is why I don't watch Discovery Channel or the History Channel. I think it's a bad strategy. Well, this might not be the channel for you, but you know, I, ha, when I come up with the scripts for the videos that I'm doing, I have to imagine the level of previous knowledge of the people who are watching it. And some people have been around right since the beginning of the Guide to Space. They've watched every episode. They, they sort of, I can provide all these shortcuts of information. But for other people, they're searching on YouTube. They're coming to this channel for the first time. They don't know about a lot of the underlying concepts. And so I try to set the stage each one that I do. And I don't go super in depth into the math. I don't try to cut a lot of the detailed information out as well, but I have to strike that balance between what I think people can be expected to know and what they might not know. And for everyone who does this kind of educational material, they have to use their own judgment on what they do. But I try to make sure that everything that I do at the very end or definitely towards near the end of the episode, I'm going to tell you things that you don't know. I'm certain that you don't know because you're, you know, I'm a space journalist and all I do all day is look at press releases and research reports and things like that. And so I'm, I'm finding all of this amazing stuff that's really cutting edge, new proposals, new journal articles, things like that. And I try to get as much of that stuff into it as I can. So that's kind of the price of admission. So sorry, this isn't the channel for you. Um, there's probably other channels that are going to go into the level of depth right from the get go that you want. But my hope is that this is the right level for a lot of the people who do like to watch this. Ryan Guitard. Do you think we'll ever reach interstellar space? Good question. Uh, I don't think that we human beings in our current meat form will be the ones to reach interstellar space. I think that we will... Within the next 100 years, 200 years, we will build robots capable of going to other star systems, and maybe we will receive some of the preliminary data back from them, but just as we send robots to places like Saturn and Pluto and things like that, that's where we're going to be doing that for the long t longest time. I can't imagine any good reason to just send human beings, again, in this current form, on these kinds of journeys, whether it's a generational starship or whether you send DNA factories that just have genetic material and they land in these other places and they they have artificial wombs that create human beings. I don't know what this would be like. I think that Earth is where we're going to stay, but I can also kind of imagine this future, and it's not too far out when we merge with our robot computer buddies and this future civilization is what goes and, and travels to other worlds. And so I think it's it's very unrealistic for us to expect that we're going to be able to make that journey as, as human beings. But I do feel like we, whatever we are and whatever we began, 
we are going to be the ones who set forth the series of events that have us eventually reach interstellar space. I do think that us or our robots or our robot-human hybrids or whatever are going to reach interstellar space. And I think it's going to happen within the next couple of hundred years. Lucid Moses. Hey, Praise, are there nebulae outside of galaxies? If a rogue star went supernova, would we be able to see the supernova remnants if there were no other stars around? You would expect that there are star-forming regions outside of galaxies. I mean, most of them are inside galaxies, but there would be clouds of hydrogen gas that could collapse on their own and form a couple of stars. And when they did that, they would detonate as supernovae, and you would be able to see those supernova explosions from Earth. In fact, it has happened. So people have found supernovae that aren't associated with any specific galaxy. They just, somewhere, a region of material gathered together, produced stars, one of the stars exploded, and we were able to detect it. So there's no reason why you couldn't have that happen. It's just not as likely as in the galaxies, and that's why astronomers are always looking through the galaxies. One thing that's going to be really exciting is when we get the Large Synoptic Survey Telescope is we're going to end up with these surveys of the entire night sky, not just these one specific places of, of interest, and we're going to see things happening night overnight. And my guess is we're going to see a lot more of this kind of stuff happen. The, you know, interesting, unexpected things happening in the gulfs between galaxies as opposed to necessarily in galaxies themselves. Indiana Stan. I hear there's lots of sightings of Sasquatch on Vancouver Island. Have you ever seen or heard them in the woods? Do you believe in them? I've heard we have the highest density of Sasquatch. No, no, I don't believe in them. Uh, haven't seen them. Uh, we do see a lot of wildlife here, and so you've probably seen in episodes when we're shooting, we've had a deer walk behind us when we're out in the forest, and that happens on a fairly regular basis. Most times when we go out, we'll see deer, hear them walking around. Um, we've seen bears a couple of times when we were on a shoot. Um, none have actually walked into the shoot. They try to stay away from us. But if you spend enough time here on Vancouver Island, you definitely see your share of bears. Most are like these little guys. They're sort of like a big dog. But I've seen some pretty big kind of unnerving bears. The one thing I haven't seen are cougars. And that is the thing that we do have the highest density of in the world. There are more cougars per square kilometer on Vancouver Island than anywhere else on Earth, and yet I've lived pretty much my whole life here on Vancouver Island, and I've never seen a cougar in the wild, ever. And so you can see that they do a really good job of avoiding us and, and trying to stay around. But we have every year cougar sightings in town where a cougar is like walked down Main Street or has been on the school grounds and they close the school for that, you know, they close down that field so the kids don't, don't go play, you know, where the cougar is, but it, chances are they're all over the place and we just don't see them, just like Sasquatch. Peter Houle, what if you struck a match on Titan or Venus? Two different worlds, kind of the same outcome though, but yeah, Titan is covered in hydrocarbons, right? There's methane and ethane and all these different kinds of what would be on Earth, very explosive compounds. But the problem is that Titan doesn't have an oxidizer, doesn't have oxygen. And so if you lit a match, however much oxygen is in the match itself, that's how much of a light you would get. Now, if you wanted to bring, say, another Titan together with pure oxygen and mush them together, then you would get a, a really nice explosion if you lit that on fire. Same thing with Jupiter, right? Jupiter is made of hydrogen, 
and helium, which is incredibly explosive and flammable, but it's not going to detonate because there's no oxygen. You need to bring another Jupiter and put that together. Now, Venus, on the other hand, has this incredibly thick atmosphere of carbon dioxide, and carbon dioxide is like a fire extinguisher, and so nothing would put out your match faster than 93 atmospheres of carbon dioxide. So you definitely wouldn't be able to get a fire going on the surface of, of Venus. Jughead Jones. Don't forget, Fraser, you live in the mildest winter zone in Canada. I'd swap with you any day. Yeah, when I'm outside and you think I'm cold or it's snowing or whatever, and other Canadians find out that I live on Vancouver Island, they laugh because we live in the mildest place you can imagine. We are the Hawaii of Canada. Uh, there's lots of places in the United States, in places in Europe, that are way worse than anything we experience here. Right now, it's beginning of March, and it's about 8 degrees Celsius out right now. It can go as high as 10, 12 degrees this time of the year. Very rarely do we get cold snaps in the wintertime. Mostly, it just rains, and it rains, and it rains, and it rains, and it just never stops raining. So, it's... If you've ever been to Seattle and you kind of know what that weather is like, that's what we have, but a little worse. Toxic needle. Fraser, if you sent a submarine drone to an icy moon of Saturn or Jupiter, how would the logistics of drilling into the ice work? First, how would we be able to keep the insertion hole itself from freezing, as I'm assuming the communication back to Earth would be done via cable running from the submarine to the surface of the moon? Also, wouldn't this whole operation be insanely hard to sterilize to keep Earth's bacteria from invading the ocean of an alien moon? Well, we'll talk about the contamination part first, and you're exactly right. We're, you know, at this point, planetary scientists, astrobiologists think that these worlds, Enceladus, Europa, and some of the other places, have like perfect environments for Earth life. They've got warmth, liquid water, they've got food in the form of hydrogen gas that is dissolved into the, into the water. They seem like the perfect place. People have done tests here on Earth and found that various kinds of, of microbial life, are archaea, are able to survive perfectly happily in, in the best simulations we can do of Europa and Enceladus. So any spacecraft that we send would need to be sterilized extra, 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 extra carefully because you are taking that life to the perfect habitat for it to survive and thrive. We think. We'll have to find out exactly what's going to happen. Now, this idea of drilling into the ice on Europa or Enceladus, how would you do it? Nuclear reactor, right? You would take a nuclear reactor, you would have it sit on the surface of Europa or Enceladus, and it would be very, very hot. And then you'd have some kind of cable that is connected to it. And then as the reactor melts the ice, the gravity will pull it down and it will start to drift and sink in through the ice. Now, it's going to be reeling out this cable behind it as it goes down, and the ice is absolutely going to be freezing behind it, and then hopefully it's going to lock that communications cable into the ice. And then this nuclear reactor will just go down and down and down and down and down, and eventually it will it'll find the bottom of the, of the ice sheet and then it will go into the ocean. And then you'll have this, and then it might release submarines and things like that, and you're going to have this communication cable. Now the question is, does the ice shift? And so could it, could the ice shift and cut the cable? Maybe. We don't really know yet. And so really, until these kinds of experiments are performed, we're not going to find out. The next big clues are going to happen when NASA's Europa Clipper mission gets to, gets to uh, Europa in the next decade, 
it's going to be able to have the right tool to map out the depth and density of the ice and where are the pockets and are there places that maybe you could reach the ice by only having to go down a couple of hundred meters as opposed to 100 kilometers or 10 kilometers or whatever is that number. So, so we have to wait and see as that ice sheet gets mapped out. Jack Kenny. Is it possible that we've yet to discover an element that belongs somewhere on the periodic table? Maybe it isn't naturally occurring on Earth, but elsewhere in the universe. My inspiration for this question is the Marvel Universe metal vibranium. I appreciate everything you do on your channel and keep up the good work. We have been able to create heavier and heavier elements on the periodic table here on Earth using particle accelerators, things like the Large Hadron Collider. And so you, you take some heavy element, you fire beams of other elements into it and you build up a, a sort of an atom that has more protons and than you would normally get. And every time you move up one proton, you get a new element and you can move up the periodic table. The problem is a lot of these elements or all of these elements beyond a certain point are unstable and they break apart again. And so the question is, could we get to some point where we can create some heavy element that maybe is not seen and it's stable and it's vibranium and you can you can use it for all these magical properties and the answer is almost certainly not and the reason we know this is because supernovae are the most powerful particle accelerators out there in the universe when a star dies collapses all of these outer sort of levels collapse inward and the whole star implodes and you have energies involved that we can't even comprehend and we know that these make a lot of heavier elements although now maybe it turns out maybe colliding neutron stars seem to do this but even so with that situation right do you think that we can generate a heavier element than two neutron stars colliding together no way and so it's almost certain that those neutron stars are generating a ton of really super heavy elements things that are way up the the periodic table of elements but we don't see them today, which means that they are unstable. So the, the neutron stars are colliding together, they're generating all the elements that we know of, all the stable elements, and then all of the other elements that they're creating, they're all decaying and turning into other things. And so we can feel very confident that there aren't going to be stable elements further up the periodic table because the most powerful particle accelerators in the universe don't seem to be generating them. But we have not exhausted the different kinds of composite metals that can be made. You know, you can mix together aluminum and beryllium and iron and you can do various sort of processes on these metals and make things with properties that we don't even understand yet. So the field of material science is kind of bottomless right now in all the different combinations that can happen. You don't need to make a new element to make a new kind of metal. I just want to thank, and I apologize, it's not in front of me right now, but maybe Chad can put up the name or point to the thing, but someone answered, essentially provided that additional information on your question in the comments and I just wanted to include it. So props to the name which I don't have in front of me. Desi Azy, is returning to the moon even worth it with the toxic asbestos like regolith and low bone wasting gravity? Is it worth setting up a base at all? Or is it simply better to stay for a little while just to know that our rockets work just as they did in the Apollo era? If you just want to prove that your rockets work, I don't think the moon is a great place to go to, right? Because it's another gravity well and you're gonna have to lower into it. There's a ton of good reasons to go to the moon. There's scientific reasons, 
there's material there on the moon. The the regolith is made has tons of aluminum and oxygen in it. You can think of you know there's potentially the helium three which could be used for for fusion reactors. So there's lots of good reasons to go to the moon. It's a stable platform. You could dig into the under the surface and and live in in tunnels underneath. The the far side of the moon is going to have is quiet for radio, has a nice stable view of the space. You could build telescopes there. So I think there's a lot of good reasons to go to the moon. You're exactly right. There are hazards. There is there's the low gravity that you're going to have to deal with. There is the radiation of being out on the surface of the moon, but you're going to have to deal with that in space anyway. And low gravity, you can deal with that out in space anyway. And there is the dangerous effects of the of the lunar regolith, which can, as you mentioned, be kind of like asbestos and cause irritation. And we don't really even know what what how bad it can get. So, but I think that all of these worlds are worth exploring, figuring out what it's like to live on them, and just understanding more. And eventually we're going to figure out the best practice. We're going to go, oh, we tried living on Mars, but it sucked. We tried living on the moon, and that sucked. Turned out just living in space itself was the best. Or it turned out living in asteroids and spinning them up, that was the best. Or it turned out living on Mars was great, and now we've got it terraformed, and we're really happy that we did that. So it's just too early to make any of these kinds of decisions. We need to get out there, and we need to try. We need to figure things out, and we need to learn. We need to gain more knowledge about what it's like to live in space. Copal Rosso. I choose snow. Is there snow on Titan? Oh, that sweet, sweet methane snow. Titan is awesome, and as I mentioned in the last episode, uh, the vote was 85%. Titan Dragonfly, 15%. Comet Return Mission, so... And it, again, I don't blame you. I would have voted against me. I think the Titan mission is a better idea, but still, I had to do my best. The cool thing about Titan is that it has this methane hydrosphere, right? So here on Earth, liquid water provides the oceans, the seas, it rains, you get rivers and lakes and glaciers and all that kind of stuff. While on Titan, the temperature is so cold that all of that hydrological activity is based on methane. So the water turns into mountains and boulders and sand and the methane, the liquid methane, provides the seas and the rivers and the rains. But if you go even farther out into the solar system, you get out to Pluto, that's when you start to get it being so cold that the methane now acts like snow. And so you're going to get same thing. You've got mountains of water ice and rocks and boulders and things like that. And then you've got glaciers of methane and ammonia and all these kinds of, of hydrocarbons. And so it's really fascinating to sort of see as you go various levels in the solar system, how these different molecules, these different chemicals act in different ways, like each other in the same kinds of ways, but but a different sort of chemical is is acting like water, which is just so fascinating. We need to explore it all. Eric Horning. Hey Fraser, is there a plausible scenario that could cause Earth to be tossed out of our solar system? There's a bunch of plausible scenarios. The one plausible scenario is that Jupiter could just do it. Uh, there is a non-zero risk that over billions of years, Jupiter could kick Earth with, through some kind of three-body interaction with other planets just out of the solar system. could also do the same thing with Mercury and Venus and Mars, I believe. So it hasn't happened in the 4.5 billion years that that we've all been here and so we can kind of assume that it that it's not going to happen but still it's possible 
The other thing is that some rogue object could move through the solar system. A black hole or a neutron star or another star could get really close and could disrupt the orbits of the planets in the solar system, but it'd have to get very close. And again, we've been here for 4.54 billion years, and it hasn't happened yet, so the chances of it happening in the future are incredibly low. So don't worry about it. Winston Master Plan. 2038? Geez, what's the point? Seems like a long time to wait and a highly risky mission for a couple of grams of comet dust. Welcome to the era of very long spaceflight missions. So back in the Voyager days, you could launch a spacecraft in 1977. It could reach Jupiter by 1980, Saturn by like 1981, Uranus 1986 and Neptune 1989. Boom, zip, 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 all these planets. But those are flybys, right? And a flyby, we saw with New Horizons, we got a day, a couple of days worth of imagery for this whole mission that took 10 years to get out to Pluto, flew past Pluto, we only got a couple of days worth of data, really just a couple of hours of high resolution photographs from, from the spacecraft as it went past Pluto and then it was gone. In order to be able to go into orbit, you need to take a longer, slower, more careful trajectory. Things like the missions that went to Jupiter, the Galileo mission, or the Cassini mission. And Rosetta, for example, took 10 years from when it launched to when it finally caught up with 67P. So it's that the kinds of science that want to get done from this point forward are going to be these orbiters, these landers, sample return missions. And so you've got to do two versions of the orbiting interaction. You've got to go from Earth, you've got to go into an orbital trajectory that gets you to, say, the comet that you want to meet up with. You've got to go into orbit around the comet, and you've got to wait for the orbits to line up again, and then you've got to be able to make that return journey. It takes a long time. And this is going to be a lot of what we see into the future is that th these missions are going to take decades to pull off because they're very ambitious. You're going to this other world that's half a solar system away, you are going into orbit or you're going down to the surface, you're retrieving a sample and you're bringing it back to Earth so that we can study it. These have a lot of moving parts, you got to wait for the orbits to line up. It's just our reality. We've done all the big flybys. And now it's time to take it to the next level. We've got to land on them. We've got to go to orbit around them. We've got to sample their atmospheres. And we've got to return samples back home. Get used to missions taking a long time for that payoff. But if we have a whole lot of missions going on, hopefully, you, you will always be enjoying the science results from another mission. And don't worry too much about these m several decades that some spacecraft is going to have to take to get somewhere and back. Remember... Uh, the you know the Parker Solar Probe is about to launch in a little while. The there's the Osiris Rex mission. Uh, the Hayabusa 2 is just about to arrive at its asteroid target and try to retrieve a sample. So there's a lot of missions. So so don't worry about those. You know just be patient and look forward to the new missions. All right, that's it. The question show. Thanks everyone for asking all your questions. As always, wherever you are on my channel, if a question pops in your brain, just type it in. I'll gather them up and I'll answer them here. We'll see you next week.